But we're so fortunate to be injured in this time of, of, of our lives. There's so many amazing opportunities available to us as long as you keep your eyes open. Welcome to Connecting the Resilient. This is your host, Andrew Mangan. Little history, I suffered a spinal cord injury in December 2016. I started Connecting the Resilient to share stories of people who've gone through the experience of spinal cord injuries, but also from doctors, researchers, therapists, and more who share their information and their ideas and what they've learned from being in the spinal cord injury community. For more information, please visit our website at www.connectingtheresilient.com. Hey there, Andrew here. Really excited to share with you today's episode with Rob Shaw. I met Rob a little over a year ago at a spinal cord injury conference in Canada, and we started talking, and I was really, really interested about the work he was doing, and I've been meaning to get him on the podcast, and I was really, really excited when we were finally able to make that work last month. And so I really hope you enjoy this podcast. And as always, we really appreciate it if you like and subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy it, and it will keep you updated on episodes that come out every month. As always, please feel free to visit our website at www.connectingresilient.com. Without further ado, my conversation with Rob Shaw. So I'm here with uh, Rob Shaw. Rob, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Yeah, so could you talk a little bit, um, could you kind of explain how you've gotten involved in this field? Um, and I, I know you're injured, and could you talk a little bit about kind of that and how you personally have um, kind of been on this road and been in this community? Yeah, so I guess my... My whole journey started with my own injury back in 2011, which is almost eight years ago now. It's amazing how time flies by. Um, but previous to that, I really didn't have much interest in spinal cord injury research. Um, but after the injury, I was fortunate enough to get um, hooked up with a professor during the last year of my undergrad who allowed me to do an independent study with him. and. He sort of pushed me more towards exploring my research capacity, and he suggested that I um, apply for a kinesiology postgraduate work with uh, a professor by the name of Dr. Kathleen Martin Guinness, who is an amazing spinal cord injury researcher in North America, based out of Hamilton. And so I went for an interview with her and um, we got along really well. I'd like to research that she was doing. And ever since then, I've, I've been pretty involved with the, the research world for the last probably four or five years. Perfect. And I know um, kind of your research and, and her research, um, you, the research you're doing now is a little bit different than what you initially uh, were working on with her. But can you talk a bit about um, the research she was uh, focusing on with um, kind of exercise and how, how the guidelines should change and um, are different than for a normal person than they would be for someone with a spinal cord injury? 
Yeah, totally. That's what really sort of led me towards Kathleen's research was her priority on exploring the importance of exercise and physical activity for people with spinal cord injury. Um, and so when I got involved with her, she had already released the original version of the SCI specific exercise guidelines. And that was all based on SCI specific research. Um, I think we have a, a greater awareness and a greater knowledge now of just how different people with SCI respond to exercise based on the physiological impairment that they have after their injuries. And so it's no longer adequate to think that people with SCI should be engaging in these same levels of physical activity as a able-bodied individual um, because their bodies function differently. Physiologically, they function differently on a muscular level. They function differently as well. And so that's what really, I think, spawned her her and her team to um, make those original guidelines. And since then, they've actually released the new updated guidelines um, that are based specifically on a large set of SCI-specific research articles. And so it's very evidence-based. It was done and created very systematically. And now we have a really good set of guidelines that we know are based in evidence that we can um, disseminate to the public to increase the awareness of the levels of exercise that people need to engage in to really experience those health benefits that we all know of, uh, the physical health benefits, the mental health benefits. Uh, and they've also released the guidelines to improve cardiometabolic health benefits. And those are different than the original exercise guidelines. It's, it's different amounts of exercise that are, are required. Um, but again, it's all evidence-based and um, that line of research is what really drew me to Kathleen in the first place. But my research has sort of taken a different shift and more so focuses on peer mentorship for people with spinal cord injury and how we can sort of better understand this service and better understand the fundamentals of peer mentorship in order to improve this service for people. Yeah, absolutely. And before we, um, before we talk about that, I'm, I'm curious, was the kind of was the reason for um, Kathy's work uh, in forming these guidelines, was it that, or, or did they find that people with spinal cord injuries were, were overworking or it was just that there weren't any guidelines and they wanted to provide more information for the, um, community as a whole? Yeah, more so the latter, Andrew. Um, unfortunately, uh, most people with spinal cord injury don't engage in any physical activity whatsoever. And at the point of when Kathleen started her research, nobody was investigating that. Nobody was concerned with looking at um, why this is occurring. And so that's where she really stepped in to fill that void. And it was it's mainly to, again, educate the public. Um, we face so many more additional barriers to engaging in exercise um, that the general public don't face. Uh, and oftentimes that leads to people completely removing themselves from exercise. And so it was really important for her to determine, okay, what are the minimal level, the least amount of activity you need to do in order to cure some sort of health benefit. And in that way, we can get away from this intimidating 60 minutes of exercise per day. Um, that can be a real barrier for people, especially with, uh, like you kind of alluded to, the overuse injuries that come with using your upper body to propel yourself in a wheelchair um, are quite severe. Uh, and given that we use our, most people use their arms and their wheelchairs for everyday life, an injury can have pretty profound effect on their ability to engage in everyday activities. 
And so it was really important for her and her team to find out what, the, what is that minimum amount of exercise required to still elicit these benefits and get that knowledge and awareness out to the public. Yeah, fascinating. And Rob, I'm curious, um, I know this isn't exactly kind of um, what her or your research is about, but uh, I was speaking with, um, with somebody else about this and they were, they'd recently completed a program where kind of the goal was to to work to allow people with spinal cord injuries to um, learn to kind of adapt to normal gyms so that they can work out wherever they are without having um, adaptive equipment. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Do you think do you think that's that's good, or do you think by trying to adapt the machines made for able-bodied people to to yourself is is more detrimental um, than than it is beneficial? Yeah, I think a healthy balance of both is is the best approach. We unfortunately live in a world where um, we just don't have the resources to create fully accessible gyms in every single city across every single country. It's just not possible. Um, and so we're fortunate enough to live in Canada, a very developed nation where we do have access to a combination of accessible equipment, accessible gymnasiums and facilities, um, accessible sporting equipment but not every single individual has that access. And so it is important yeah. that people understand how they can adapt machines, how they can adapt exercises, because not everything is SCI specific or disability specific. And I think that's okay. We have to understand that we, we are a minority of the population. Um, doesn't mean that we shouldn't have access and shouldn't have rights, but um, I think it comes to a certain degree that, you know, if we can be creative, if we can be adaptive, if we can, you know, band together and, and, look at how how can we do something that we used to do just in a different way um that's going to make the environment more inclusive to begin with rather than having specific gyms and facilities only for people um that need accessible equipment that almost is counterintuitive right it sort of segregates you to that gym rather than integrating you uh, into the existing infrastructure that's available yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's interesting uh very very valid point um, and in your research, kind of working with uh, like peer mentorship, could you talk a bit about that? And is that more peer mentorship right after the injury and in, in like the initial phase? Or is it kind of more long term and, and just having somebody to kind of go to um, and to help help you along the way? Yeah, that's what I love about peer mentorship is that it spans the lifespan. Um, you know, obviously it's extremely important post-injury to get linked up, I think, with an individual who's been through what you're going through, um, who has that lived experience, who's who's faced those challenges, those barriers, who's been really low and have, you know, come out better because of it, have gone on to live very successful, happy lives. Um, it's important for somebody to see that, that life goes on, that it can be good, that it's not the the end of the world. Um, but that doesn't just happen post-injury. It, it happens 5, 10, 15 years down the road as well. Somebody living in the community who hasn't had access to individuals um, may need just as much support as someone who's newly injured. Mm -hmm. And so I had a really positive experience with peer mentorship after my injury. That's how I got involved with sport. Um, and so when I started doing research with Kathleen, I was really always, always remembering that time of how important those peer mentorship relationships were for me. Um, and then we started doing more research and, and investigating, you know, how important this service was for individuals, both in hospital and community settings. Um, 
And that's how I really got involved with some of that personal experience. And now I'm really concerned with improving that service. How can we make peer mentorship the best possible, most effective service that it can be? So looking at the fundamentals of it, um, things like do matching criteria have an impact on the effectiveness of this service? Um, you know, should we, be, should we be matching people based on age, based on gender, based on disability level? Um, or is it more so based on interests and, and what they actually have in common um, at a more personal level? Um, looking at specific leadership behaviors of peer mentors and can we train those, those behaviors into new peer mentors to make them more effective at communicating and listening to their mentees and providing feedback and guidance to them? Um, yeah. How does medium of interaction impact the, the quality of the, of the relationship? You know, can we have uh, people having just as effective relationships talking over the phone or does it need to be face-to-face? These are questions that will hopefully shape the development of peer mentorship programs and how we actually deliver this service to people in Canada. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think, I think it's a huge, huge um, benefit and it's super useful. I mean, for myself, I also kind of had a, a wonderful experience. Um, I was put in touch with somebody early on after I was injured and it was just extremely helpful because uh, he was, he'd been injured about three years before me um, and we had kind of similar injuries. And I mean, that's in part why I, why I started this podcast was to provide a sort of avenue where people could try to find or listen to people who are, who are similar to them or share interests or have done and gone on. Um, and like you said, um, like prove that, that life goes on after the injury. Um, but I'm curious, what is kind of, what have you found about like what the most effective um, like peer is? Is it simply somebody that just has has gone on and is is just successful and and positive or does it really affect kind of whether they're their same age or a similar injury or gender like you said yeah so that's a very loaded and complicated question that we're we're trying to obviously answer um um, because there are so many different elements that really go into a peer mentoring relationship so we've we've uncovered some answers i think uh we have a better understanding of how to match mentors and mentees, the, the outdated version of matching mentors and mentees based on age and gender and disability level. Um, we know that's not what mentees want. Um, they want to be matched with mentors who have a very similar life experience as them, who have similar life goals as they do, mm-hmm. um, which I think makes sense, right? If, you, if you're a, a young male who is looking to, um, you know, uh, gain employment and potentially start a family, then it makes sense to be matched with uh, a male or a female who had that same ambition and goal when they were injured. Um, Cause they can help guide you through that process and guide you through that journey. Whereas, you know, matching with somebody who is also a male, the same age and disability who had no desire to be employed and no desire to have a family um, probably isn't going to be able to provide the, the, the same level of intimate mentorship as the individual who's been through it. Right. So that's yeah. pretty obvious to- but it, it was never really researched. And so we have a better sense of, of how to match mentors and mentees. Um, we have a much better sense of the different characteristics that um, make up a quality peer mentor. Um, and so we, we just finished a study that was led by Dr. Heather Gainforth at UBC, where we identified over 200 different characteristics of quality peer mentors. Uh, and those were sort of summarized down into sort of six overarching themes being competencies, personality characteristics, uh, the emotional state of the mentor, the mentor outlook, reason for mentoring, and then then being a role model. And so 
based on this study that will hopefully soon be published and available to the public, um, mm-hmm. we have a much better idea of not necessarily how to train peer mentors specifically, um, but how to identify what peer mentors might be extremely effective and extremely um, efficient at their job. Um, and, and hopefully that will lead maybe to potential screening criteria as far as who can and cannot be a mentor. Um, but definitely give us a better understanding of just what are some of these innate characteristics and learned skills that make up a quality peer mentor. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those are, those are a few of the, the, the questions that we're starting to uncover. And you can see how they all sort of interrelate as far as the, the potential impact it has on the effectiveness of this service. Yeah, absolutely. And um, are there kind of, because I know like the, the hospital I was at, it was officially, it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge part of, um, of my day. There was, there was kind of the, the community and community events and stuff where you would, you would talk to people who, um, like had been injured earlier than you and you'd ask advice and stuff and they'd have, they'd bring in people, but it wasn't really, um, like a, um, a specific, a specified part of like, here, here's your mentor. Um, and kind of, there was no real connection, uh, if you will. And so, mm. Do you think that that's something that's kind of lacking currently in part of the recovery process is something that sets you up um, more officially with the mentor? And do you think that's changing or do you think that's still kind of is something that, that needs to be pushed more? Yeah, I, I'm slightly biased, but at the same time, I think the research is starting to show that it's just so important to make those connections as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Across Canada, we know that peer mentorship is in a, is occurring in over 40 different hospitals, um, which is quite impressive given that there's only roughly around 16 SCI-specific rehab centers across Canada. So yeah. mentorship is occurring in, in hospitals that are not just SCI-specific for rehab. Um, but we definitely, I think, need to have more formalized interactions that are occurring um, during that rehab um, period for people. We see that being done in the States right now uh, with a lot of really great outcomes coming out of their research. Uh, we see that being done over in the Netherlands where there's actually uh, very formalized and structured peer mentorship programs that are offered um, in the hospital setting where people get matched right away and they, they form that connection early on. And so that when they're discharged from the hospital, um, whether they're ready to receive peer mentorship or not, they've already formalized that connection. They have that person they can reach out to and so they don't feel like they're on their own. Um, and I really do think that we need to sort of uh, work together with our with our current health professionals and with the current healthcare system to have peer mentors have a little more autonomy in the hospital setting. Um, because I think the role they play is is very, very large. It's very impactful. And right now it's probably being underutilized. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely... Uh... I definitely agree with you there. It's, 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 it's an appreciated role, um, but it's not kind of given the same weight as, as other aspects, or at least in my case, um, as other aspects of the kind of rehabilitation. I think it's, it's as important as, as pretty much any other aspect. Um, and I'm curious, have you done any research regarding the benefits of like, um, like, um, like support groups or like Facebook groups or stuff and kind of how those affect, do they have a similar effect as peer mentors or is that just kind of where somebody goes if they don't have access to 
like a one-on-one peer mentor, then they, they turn to like some of these groups for, for answers, I guess. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, the definition of peer mentorship and versus peer support is pretty cloudy. Um, and so oftentimes when people say they're receiving peer support, they might actually be receiving mentorship and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so peer mentorship, I sort of, we, we sort of think of it as this one-to-one connection between two individuals that um, is often um, more so support being given to the mentee. So the mentee is seeking that support, they're seeking the guidance, and it's definitely more of a, of a one-way interaction. Um, both parties are benefiting, but one is benefiting significantly more, whereas peer support, um, that benefit uh, is very mutual both ways. Um, and it's not just one person seeking out guidance from the other, it's sort of everyone seeking out guidance from each other. Mm-hmm. And so we see in the research that both are beneficial. Uh, the peer mentorship is very beneficial, but also the peer support. Um, I definitely have an interest in examining the, the, the difference between the two and looking at the the effectiveness of the of the two and the impact that it can have, because um, obviously something like peer support can reach a greater amount of people. Uh, yeah. When you get groups of people together, obviously you're having a larger impact uh, as far as the numbers go. Um, but that's only true if the if the quality of interaction and if the the outcomes are as beneficial as those one to one interactions. And we don't know those answers yet, but that's definitely um, something that we we hope to investigate in the future for sure. Yeah, and I definitely agree. Um, yeah, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. How kind of it totally depends on the like level of level of the group. Basically, like there can be if there's just certain naysayers or people who aren't very communicative or or positive or whatnot, it can definitely affect affect the entire group and basically kind of take down its effectiveness um, a notch. But um, yeah, I'm definitely definitely interested to to see how your uh, see what your research kind of comes out regarding that. Um, and so, Rob, a lot of um, a lot of the listeners are people who've either recently suffered a spinal cord injury or people who know somebody who's recently suffered a spinal cord injury. Um, and so, what would you what would your advice be to? Um, and I know it's a loaded question, but what would your advice be to someone who's recently suffered a spinal cord injury or a family member or a friend of somebody who's had a spinal cord injury in the kind of in the peer mentorship um, uh, area or, or in general? Yeah, so I, I do actually uh, a lot of peer mentorship still myself as a peer mentor, um, not as much as I probably should. But um, when I was first injured for the first five to seven years, I did a lot of peer mentorship. Um, and I always try to just tell people and not necessarily tell, but just show them, um, all the different opportunities that are still available to them. Um, and that we are so fortunate, um, to, I always say this to people and I say it to myself as well. I, I felt so fortunate to have injured myself in this era, um, mm-hmm. in an era where we have people's attitudes and stigmas changing, um, where we have inclusivity available to us, where we, we have, um, you know, we're able to integrate in society. We're able to gain employment. Uh, we're able to be seen as equals. Um, and that wasn't the case for a lot of our brothers and sisters who were injured back in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, they were institutionalized. They were, they were hidden away from communities. Uh, and so we're so fortunate to be injured in this time of, of, of our lives that there's so many amazing opportunities available to us as long as you keep your eyes open. Um, 
and it's not easy. You know, I never, I never lie to people and say, Oh, it's, it's, it's not that bad. It's, it's easy. It's not. Um, obviously if it were easy, I think we would all be born in wheelchairs. Uh, but that's not yeah. the case. The world, the world is inherently inaccessible. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't overcome those barriers. Um, if you keep your, 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 your body healthy, if you keep your mind healthy, um, there's so many possibilities out there now that, uh, are truly amazing that, you know, you're going to end up experiencing things that you never thought you would have been able to experience. And that's, and that's going to go both ways, like both good experiences and bad experiences. Um, you know, one of my very first dates after my injury, I ended up having a bladder accident and, and pissing myself. Um, that's not something that I was ever going to experience probably as an able-bodied individual. Um, but it's something that, you know, I was able to gain a lot of confidence from and gain a lot of respect from and, um, be able to laugh at the little things in life. Um, so again, it's all these sort of things that you're going to end up experiencing and learning both the the negatives and the positives. But, um, as long as you keep on working and and keep your, your eyes open, there's going to be tons of opportunities for you still. Yeah. Yeah. Very well, very well put. Well, Rob, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today and kind of explain, I think, uh, explain your research. I think what you're doing is, is really, really important. Um, and I look forward to, to the studies and being able to kind of see what your, um, what your conclusions are in the future. So thanks again for, for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, no, thank you, Andrew. And thank you for all that you're doing. I think this podcast is uh, another great example of how the shared experience of peers can really uh, empower people to, to try new things, to get out of bed each day and, and just live life to the fullest. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And I look forward to seeing where, uh, where your work takes you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Take care. Bye.